0: This centenary celebration of Jimmy Bruin is brought to you in association with AIG, serving the car and home insurance needs of Ireland's golfers.
1: You know, it's fascinating when you look more deeply into the history of Irish golf and where we've come from and all the foundations that have been laid and uh, why is Shane Lowry winning an Open Championship? Why is Rory McIlroy so good? Why have people like Darren Clark and Paul Ducant and and so many others, you know, prospered uh, as golfers and there have been some amazing women as well. And, um, you know, that's set to continue now with the unions joining together and a greater unity and given the fact that the Golfing Union of Ireland and the Irish Ladies Golf Union are the two oldest golf unions in the world, it is kind of special. And it needs celebration and it needs reminding. But there is a future. And the future now will be Golf Ireland and that whole product, which will kind of start to evolve and is already evolving right now, which is to be celebrated. But um, that is a kind of a long-winded introduction into my next guest who's a very important lady in Irish golf, I can tell you this. but She's uh, not only working for Munster Golf, so the Munster branch of the Golf Union of Ireland and has been for many years now, but she is the mother of the reigning amateur champion. And I say hello to Margaret Suger. Hi Shane, how are you? Not bad, it's great to talk to you Margaret and uh, its I, I'm I sure it, it's been a fascinating year for all, all the Sugrues and uh, just to see what James has achieved I mean it's a—it's an incredible list of achievements in terms of his junior golf and progressing to where he got to but to win the amateur it's kind of the pinnacle for for any amateur male or female to win one of the real big ones one of those ones that Bobby Jones won and so many other greats but can you describe your own emotion throughout the week when, when your son started to get through each match at Port Marnock last year?
2: I can. Well, I went up on Thursday morning with Niall O'Shea from Cork News. And I had said to him, I'll go home with you at lunchtime when he's finished his first match if he hadn't progressed. Mm. So he had progressed. Now in the meantime I parked my car in Mitchellstown. So then I met another guy um Goggle's we call him James's friend and I said I'll go home with you tonight on if James doesn't progress. He said fine I'm staying here he said until we get to the end. So that was Thursday. I had nothing. I had brought no clothes or anything. So I was just I had to go into town on Thursday night to get my stuff sorted, but I was very lucky because of my two, his brother and sister, Michelle and Edward, live in Dublin.
3: Yeah.
2: But Friday morning, I was, I, I can't describe how sick I was, and nervous, mm. very nervous Friday evening, Saturday, and then for the final, extremely nervous mm. for James because of all the work he had put into it. And then... Things were great and then things started to come the, go the other way. But thankfully, thankfully he won in the end, which was absolutely fantastic for him. Mm. Life changing for him, Shane.
1: Yeah, and for the whole the family, people... like something such, yes. so, something so special to happen and for it to actually come, come true and for it to go all the way as well. I mean, this was not over until you got to the 36th hole.
2: Exactly we're humbled at the whole thing and the way people have spoken about James, That you know, how nice they are to him and how nice they were to us in Port Marnock, the whole of Port Marnock, the, the golf club, they couldn't have been nicer to us and to all the members of Mallow Golf Club who came up to support him. Yeah. It was absolutely very emotional. Yeah. I actually, you know, it was actually very nice.
1: Yeah. And, um dealing with everything that's happened since I'm sure like awesome. you're you're probably the keeper at the gate market, so they're they're probably all calling you and uh leaving James alone, I would hope, but you're you're kind of feeling the brunt of all the attention, I would imagine,
2: yes, because as you know James, he's not a man for you know out there and being in the limelight, he would be shy and I do think you get a lot of the phone calls, but sure, isn't it great? Aren't they fantastic phone calls to be getting?
1: I know, incoming calls are always very welcome, you know. <laughs> it's, yeah. a, it's when the phone doesn't yeah. ring, you can start worrying. But, um, you know, given your exactly. your own involvement in golf, which is, um, I don't know, how long have you been working for Monster Golf now? Uh,
2: 11 years. Wow. Mm. So
1: you are, are you specifically looking after younger talent now through... That.
2: Yes, I do the junior side of it, mm. and my colleague Karen does the senior side of it. I would do all the junior championships. Okay. The administration, and we work together as a team.
1: Yeah, well, you know, as someone who played in um, a few Monster Boys, it was like playing in a major, Margaret. You know, like for for a kid. Yeah you know, this was the absolute ultimate, uh, you know, unless you were really good and you managed to play in all of them and played in the Irish boys, yes. but that's kind of reserved for, you know, the, the really good golfers, you know, of yes. underage level, but the Monster boys for me, uh, playing in Shannon, playing in, uh, where did I play? Castle Troy and I met, I met Padraic Harrington for the first time at the Monster Monster boys. And, uh, um, And do
2: you know, Shane, James never played in the Munster
1: boys.
4: He okay.
2: was always away. <laughs> yeah. With the Irish squad.
1: Right, so therefore he was kind of he was his talent was identified at that early so he became part of the elite junior squad. Yes. At
2: 15.
1: And what was that like as a mother? Do you mind me asking? I mean this all relates to the whole Jimmy Bruin thing and we'll bring it all back to that very nicely now very shortly but just you know, to bring it into the present day, you're a mother of a talented boy. And I mean, there are many mothers and fathers out there who have to deal with this. Um, Because a lot of it is determined by the kid, the kid himself, the boy or the girl who wants it. Now, some parents wanted a bit more than their kids wanted, but uh, that's another argument. But like, what was it like for you guys when it started to happen very quickly that he actually had a little bit of something extra?
2: Well, you know, Shane, we never really got involved or dictated anything to him. We just kind of left him because he had to make the decision himself to give up the hurling and stick with the golf. Yeah. But, you know, Mick and I are really not golfers. Yeah. Mick would have played it before we had our business and then he had to give it up because of the business.
3: Mm.
2: And then children came and things got in the way and things like that. But, no, we really never, he was his own man. Yeah. He it away and nice and quietly in the background, and yeah, you know, he did it himself. So he took and, it in his stride as
1: well. He took it in his stride.
2: He did. He yeah. did. He would never be, you know, one of these guys that would be boastful or anything like that. It was, you know, yeah. Gwend, yeah. move along.
1: It <laughs> it's great, isn't it? <laughs> I like it. Um, you know, it's, yeah. it is fascinating though when a when a when a I mean, I would have just observed all these guys when I was a kid and you had Leslie Walker winning the British boys championship when I was kind of playing my first boys season. And uh, then you're looking at all the other guys who are wandering around in their, their Ireland sweaters and they've got their McGregor golf bags and uh, they just look like, they look like the elite squad, you know what I mean? Which they were, but um, it was fascinating to me because it was just golf at a whole new level. And these were guys that were in and around the same age. And, uh, you know, I was, I was never good enough, but I, I really enjoyed kind of looking at them, watching them, caddying for a few of them and just the, just the, the fun of it, the whole thing. It was so exciting, I found, but to be one of those individuals and to be a parent of them, um, obviously you've got a certain advantages knowing that you're, you know, I mean, you're, you're a Golfing Union of Ireland employee, you're, so you're tuned into the whole junior thing. So... That was that was pretty advantageous, I would imagine. I'm, I'm, I'm just suggesting, perhaps. Would you agree?
2: I would, now, know, like in that I knew what was going on because as we weren't golfers, we wouldn't have known. Yeah. But, you know, it was, I suppose, really. I suppose it is, you know, it is advantageous that I'm there.
3: Mm.
2: And, you know, you kind of know people and things like that. But at the end of the day, you have to have the talent. You have to move it on and do it yourself.
1: Yeah, so then you have a son then that actually has the talent and he is progressing and he's getting better and he's starting then to play in, you know, the proper men's championships and he's winning the South and he's, he's, he's starting to make it onto the elite squad for men and he's still young. Um, Like, how do you handle that or what's the perspective? Are you that cool or you just go, well, you know, it's, it's up to you, James, like you've got to you know, let the clubs do the talking or or what's the general mood in the family?
2: You see, I tell you, Shane, James wouldn't want any of the fuss and we wouldn't be fussing around like that, you know. Yeah. I, I, I don't know if I'm explaining it properly, but...
1: You're not you living know, through he, him, in other words. You're not living vicariously through his prospective successes. No, and
2: we would never successes. say to James, why did you use that club? Why didn't <laughs> you put that in? Because we don't know. Yeah, yeah it's James good. knows. It's good. Not us. Yeah. So, like, we really, I suppose we funded it, but he did the rest himself.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's hes such you a know? cool customer, isn't he? I mean, he kind of, he does take, he's still taking things in his stride, even though we've got a whole lockdown and his, um, his chance of going to the Masters was postponed. We don't know when that will resurface. I mean, there's obviously a date in mind, but... I really couldn't tell you if that's actually going to happen this year Margaret I mean so like there's so many different things going on at the moment where nobody really knows
2: yes like I the day he got the phone that he got the, the message from Augusta mm. it, you know he was fine about it I personally was sick yeah for him mm. as a mother
3: mm.
2: you know I, I, I couldn't I couldn't speak. I was so upset, but it didn't. You know, he said it's fine. It's postponed, and at the end of the day, he said a game of golf. He said, mm. and we will we will get there. So, you no, know, they are very kind to him, and they're on to him all the time. You know, but yeah. it's supposed to be on in November, and if it isn't, that he's, you know, I'm sure they would honor his um, invitation. Yeah. Well, depending on the amateur this year, if it's going to be held or whatever, yeah. you know, everything is just mad. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, can you imagine? So we don't yeah. honestly, yeah.
2: no.
1: Yeah, yeah, good. I mean, should look, everyone's in the same boat. Nobody knows. So moving on yeah. from that, um, your son uh, managed to win the amateur championship and he did it in 2019, 70 years after Max McCready won it, another Irishman at Port Marnock. The only two times that the championship has been played outside of the UK in history. And so there's a fabulous kind of story about that, but we don't need to get into that. We can do that some other time. But your son did it. And in so doing, he became the second James from Cork to win the amateur. It is a unique connection that he has now with Jimmy Broon. And you yourself have a bit of a connection with Jimmy Broon. Isn't that right?
2: That's right. Um, I didn't know this until my mother told me that Jimmy Brun and his buddies would come down to Mallow and my uncle, my mother's brother, would hunt out the pheasants for him when they'd be shooting mm. and they would get 50 pence or whatever it would be in old money a day to do that. And it, it's just amazing. <laughs> Here it is, James or Jamie Bruin, yeah. and my my mother's brother doing this.
1: I know, yeah, but
2: life.
1: I know it's funny, isn't it? Yes. it's funny. Uh, yeah, it's, it's amazing. Good. It it's is amazing. It is, and that's the uniqueness of golf, really, in some respects. But I mean, you know, that's Cork life as well. It's like Irish life. It's like everyone likes to be outdoors, and some people have that. You know, a variety of pastimes, and Jimmy Bruin was certainly one of those who really did. Live a life where he fished, he hunted, he sailed, he loved family holidays, and he was a bit of a superstar in his spare time. And he uh, was. you know, just remarkable. And he was from Cork, which is very important, Margaret. Very, very important.
2: Oh, very important. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and if I can give you one more connection, and it is this Jimmy Bruin's yes. mother. Her name was Margaret.
2: Oh my gosh! There you go. That's un- that's unbelievable. It's true. That's amazing.
1: Yeah. So Margaret and her son James, and Margaret and her son James, two Cork <laughs> mother and sons, both. We're
2: humbled. Winning We're humbled, Shane.
1: The amateur. Margaret I think we'll leave it on that note um, I hope to talk to uh, your son in a moment but I know that you're a big fan of a certain American band would you like to tell us what that band's name is and would you like to introduce this particular piece of music
2: um, The Eagles Yes and t- Take It Easy
1: Very good, here it comes Margaret it's always a pleasure
5: Thank you very much Jane. thank you Seven women on my mind. Four that want to hold me to, that want to stone me once, she's a friend of mine. Take it easy, take it easy. Don't let the sound.
1: there you go, the selection of uh, Margaret Sugru of Mallow County Cork, the mother of the reigning amateur champion, James Sugru. So take it easy from the Eagles. And, uh, well, we had James Sugru on a couple of weeks ago on the podcast as we made our way to Houston Station. And he was heading back down to Mallow, where he uh, remains and has remained effectively uh, since uh, everything started to go into lockdown. And uh, that was around about the time of the... um, the postponement of the Masters if I'm not mistaken James March 13th it was a Friday Friday the 13th yeah, yeah. how, how are you well, doing it
6: was, yeah I'm very well no Shane yourself
1: yeah hanging in there we're celebrating Jimmy Bruin. we'll get to him in a moment but uh, what about James Suguru how, how have you managed these um yeah. bizarre times
6: yeah it's been um it, ha- it has been bizarre sure look it's the it's the same for everyone everyone's in the same boat um, I've been Doing as much practice as I can here at home, and you have to see the golf clubs reopening on Monday. Yeah,
1: so that's a bit of a relief. So you'd be able to play a few holes anyway, and kind of just slow your slowly work your way back into some class of form. I mean, I mean there's nothing really to aim at at the moment, is there?
6: Not really. Um, probably the one that I'm thinking of is Memorial. Hopefully, all going well. It still goes ahead. Yeah, um, but I think it's maybe. Fourteen, fifteen, that kind of way of um, July. Yeah. So that that's my next one. Um, but like as I says, no one, no one really knows. No one really knows. Yeah. And so I can only live in hope.
1: Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I mean, like, I mean, what kind of practice are you doing, or how do you just kind of uh, pl- plan um, it? Or... Well,
6: I suppose for the last week or so, Shane, I've been working, in I school with my coach, Michael, and we were just doing a lot of. I, I set up a thing here at home where I have um, I suppose well it's not a flag it's actually a bag of blocks is, is how I use a flag <laughs> so I have a bag of blocks at 30 metres 40 metres 50 metres so on all the way up to 100 metres mm. and that's what we're just working on we're okay. doing a lot of um, a lot of yardages and kind of just just I suppose that would be one thing that I'd find myself to all well, with old competition stuff that the kind of yardages and wedges can be a little bit rusty.
3: Mm.
6: So I suppose it's just good to fine tune them and make us track man as I thought it's ideal.
1: Right and uh, distance control, muscle memory and i you know this kind of thing has to, you have to see the target, you have to believe your yardage and then yeah. you just got to let you know your practice take over in terms of just delivering without thinking about it too much I would imagine.
6: Exactly, this was the the goal is for every shot to just be second nature to just uh, stand up and just just swing
1: all right good sounds like you've got a logical plan going there with um, Michael Collins, your lifelong coach and uh you're keeping it all local as well, which is nice nice to be home I suppose in some respects when you know that nobody else is playing and there's no there are no competitions, so everyone's in the same boat
6: yeah it's um it's 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 obviously a very weird time but as i said it's the same for everyone there's going to be no competitions um, in golf clubs and stuff i know and it might be hard for fellas to maybe find a bit of motivation but look all we can do is just keep on trying and just be ready for when for when the the time comes
1: now very importantly, we've been marking the centenary of uh, the birth of Jimmy Brune, Ireland's first golf superstar, from your home county of Cork, and uh, a native of Little Island and Cork Golf Club, and representing muskery throughout uh, clubs that you know mm-hmm. well through your own, you know, involvement in Cork yep. golf as a as a kid and into full amateur. Um, but what about just being? Another James from Cork. There's only two of you who have won the amateur championship and have played Walker Cup. It's kinda special.
6: Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um I suppose obviously growing up we used to play the Jimmy Broom down here. I I've played in the Jimmy Broom myself. Um and then I suppose as I got older I started to to learn who he was and what he had done and that he was actually Born, I think, in Belfast, really, yeah. and then at a very young age came down to Cork, and I, I hope he calls himself a Corkman. I we're <laughs> going to claim him anyway.
1: Oh no, so, um, his dad is from Cork, and his dad was just working up in the bank for uh, Cork. Could, could be a couple of years. I'm not sure exactly how long. Um, okay, but no, his dad so definitely, yeah.
6: definitely ours.
1: Oh, he's pure Cork. No, yeah, was,
6: yeah, 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 pure Corkman. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, it was yeah, it's great, and like even to, as I was saying to. A I think it was ma'am um, there the other day I was saying to, you know, just to have your name on the trophy that Jimmy Broon's name is on Bobby Jones' name is on is, is brilliant like you kind of you can almost kind of forget about it until, until you're reminded of it.
1: Yeah, yeah it's a nice nice thing to be reminded of though on occasion and and certainly when you can remind yourself of it you know when you need a bit of a boost can you just look at the trophy or yeah. look, at, look at the record books and you'll be there forever James you'll be there forever. Yeah,
6: Exactly. Exactly, he's he's a great name and just delighted to be associated with him. Yeah. The famous Jimmy Broome.
1: There you go. Listen, uh, great talking to you and uh, let's keep in touch. Um, I know you're a great man for the music. You have your Spotify going pretty regularly as we uh, explored Uh briefly a few weeks ago. So would you like to pick the next piece of music and tell me why, what it is and maybe who it's for?
6: Yeah, I'm going to go for an old school one in James Taylor, Mexico. Yes. Um, it just reminds me of going to GA matches and golf tournaments with my dad years ago. He's a big James Taylor fan, and he used to play this song quite a lot.
1: Very good. And did uh, did th- they not call you Sweet Baby James as a mark of respect? Yeah, J- I remember that. <laughs>
6: da- I remember Dad used to always say that to me that you know his song where he goes. Yeah. sweet baby James and everything and um yeah. yeah he used to say that he named me after James Taylor no I'm not sure I'm not <laughs> I don't know how true that is but yeah Nothing. I like I like a few of his songs is very good
1: ah they're very good all right this one is especially for your dad Mick and for all your family as well it's in continued good health and uh, we'll see you down the road James Sugar well done
6: cheers Jane thanks very much. Way
4: down here,
5: you need a reason to move. Feel a fool running your state side.
1: Man really needs no introduction. Uh, this little excerpt of a longer conversation that I had with him was recorded during the Open Championship at Carnoustie in 2007, which turned out to be just the most amazing week, uh, for obvious reasons. Padraig Harrington won it, and earlier in the week, it was announced that Joe Carr, who kind of took over and just accelerated. Uh, immediately after the legendary Bruin kind of laid some foundations. But Joe Carr, it was announced, would be inducted into the World Golf Hall of Fame in St. Augustine, Florida later that year. So at the beginning of Open Championship Week at Carnoustie, that was the big news. And it was followed very swiftly as well with a press conference by Sevi Ballesteros, who played a, a an exhibition match at Cork Golf Club in 1983. And they still have, a I think it's a Spanish elm. Uh, on one of the holes where he hit this incredible drive. And as Liam Higgins said in part two of the podcast, they were the two most creative um, geniuses that he ever saw playing golf. And he had played golf with Sneed and Hogan and Palmer and Nicholas, you name it. Um, incredible, really. And Liam Higgins, who caddied and played golf with Bruin, you know, was saying that, that Ballesteros and Bruin were the two most special people he'd ever seen. But anyway, back to my point, Seve Ballesteros announced his retirement from active golf in that week as well. It was a rather forlorn um, Sevi Ballesteros, who kind of hosted a press conference in the media center that week. But Rory McElroy was the new boy wonder, and he was an amateur, and he just pretty much did Bruin-like things immediately. So he was the only player in round one to card a bogey free round. Think about that, at the Open Championship. And there he is, an 18-year-old amateur, doing Bruin-like things. And I had been speaking to Peter Alice, who I was working with that week, on the commentary team, about this book project that I was working on. And I wanted to get some kind of insight from him about Joe Carr and... Jimmy Bruin. So we set a date to kind of record something, um, in studio when he wasn't on air. So I can see it now. He's leaving his position from the commentary desk and coming behind a, um, a hoarding. And I'm just waiting there with my microphone and recorder primed to gather some gold from the, the voice of golf. And, It's just interesting even listening back to this because Rory was just this new name for a lot of people that week, for obvious reasons. He was our little boy wonder, but now he was becoming public property. But I just wanted to talk to Peter about his reflections on one of his boyhood heroes, Jimmy Bruin.
7: I've only met Jimmy Bruin, I think, no more than three times. He had a relation who lived in an area of Bournemouth called Talbot Woods, which was a rather smart area of town, and he came. It may have been an aunt. I'm not sure. Um. And he came, he phoned me up and said, what about a game of golf? And we played at Parkstone. Now, this was long after he'd finished playing, but um, he, and his swing didn't look half as quirky as I was led to believe the first time I ever saw him hit a ball. Um, I mean, not as quirky as Jim Furyk, for example, the modern professional, but he had the most beautiful short game, uh, rather like John Daly has a, a, a beautiful, flowing short game today. Jimmy... Jimmy uh, pitched beautifully and st- when he stood over a putt you felt it was going in it was just a lovely t- and a delightful man not as big as I thought, just under six foot I would have thought and we saw him down in Cork a couple of times with uh, Jimmy Bowen, another good young amateur, who, I'm, I'm going back 30 odd years now, um, Peter Townsend and I and J- David Thomas we went down there to play in a tournament at Little Island they were glorious happy times, We had we had a glorious life you know well, the extraordinary thing was, though, he was a favourite for Dirk when he was 16 years of age. That's why this young lad, uh, Rory, playing here, Rory, Rory. Um, McElroy here this week shades of Jimmy Bruin. Jimmy was quite remarkable and uh, of course if you there were two amateurs at that time Ronnie White and Jimmy Bruin and when the old Daily Telegraph foursomes were being played which was an excellent tournament professional uh, and only 32 pros 32 amateurs top amateurs in a hat pull pull out uh, you know an amateur that was amateur and a pro together paired on if you got Ronnie White or Jimmy Bruin you were uh, sort of odds on favorite to win the tournament and Ronnie White I think won it twice and I think, I'm think i not sure whether Jimmy won it uh, with uh, Wally Smithers a delightful old pro from the West Country of England uh, uh, they won it at Birkdale it was, they, they were really great times great fun
8: L is for the way you look at me O is for the only one I see V is very very was made for me and you. At me, oh, is for the only one I see. V is very, very extraordinary, e is even more than anyone that you adore can love, is all that I.
1: Brilliant to hear from Peter Alice and also very nice to hear the late Nat King Cole and L-O-V-E. Well, there's a lot to love about what Jimmy Bruin did as a player and how he carried himself as a man, as a businessman, as a family man. And, you know, he was just a very interesting fella. I wish I knew him. I'm sure a lot of you wish you saw him and you're not alone. One man who had the incredible opportunity to play him In an Irish amateur championship, the Irish close, which was played in Killarney in 1963, was the late Brian Hoey. Fascinating man of Irish golf. Um, Really great player. He and his brother. And Brian Hoey became the oldest winner of the Irish amateur close in 1984 when he was 50. And his son, Michael, carried on the tradition, still does to this day of golfing excellence, uh, a winner of the Irish Open Amateur Championship himself at Royal Dublin, and most significantly, I think, a winner of the Amateur Championship, or the British Am, as a lot of people like to call it, in 2001 at Royal Troon, which got him into the Masters, and he's gone on to be a multiple winner on the European Tour and on the Challenge Tour, and phenomenal talent. But Brian Hoey, his dad, played Jimmy Bruin In the Irish close Now Bruin was far past his best He was holidaying As he tended to do in Killarney And They kind of convinced him to play And he decided that he would Honour that Because he played a lot of his golf in Killarney And he came up against Brian Hoey So I let the late Great Brian Hoey Pick up the story
9: He used to have He used to operate a caravan at Killarney, Norman's course, the course that Norman knows, and the caravan was situated between the fourth green and the uh, sort of seventh T mm-hmm. which was the the seventh was the short hole. You remember across the corner of the lake, mm-hmm. and there was a, there was a a pathway that ran from the fourth green, you know, up to the seventh uh, up to the seventh tee, and halfway down there was sort of we lay by and Jimmy, there's caravan in there. And they had one or two nice little parties, you know. Uh, but n- nothing, n- nothing hilarious and I played the championship and to my amazement uh, I was drawn against them in the first round and of course, I thought, what am I going to do about this sort of thing? You know, Jimmy Brown, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I didn't know his form, and nobody knew his form. And the wee guy, remember, the, there was a wee man for a hotelier from Killarney, uh, John, somebody or other, uh, and I was staying in his hotel. and He says, "Oh, he says, he says, you should beat him." He says, "He has, he's not playing, and his hands bothering him, etc." Anyway, to cut long story short, I, I played round with Jimmy against Jimmy, and he was getting a little bit frustrated because he's only sort of he was given a wee thing like this and the frustration sort of came out I was two up and I'm playing remember the whole norm went down the hill power five up the sleepers in the bunker that's right well what, I, what was that the, it's, it's the uh, tw- 13th, 13th the 13th hole 13. and I had a gra- I was two up and I had a great drive down there, and I took another driver and I ran it up between the bunkers onto the green. Now Jimmy knew he was in trouble because he was too down. And out came the driver and he got it up here. That was the only time he had the driver out the whole round. And he hit it <laughs> about fifty yards past where I was, right down <laughs> in the flat. And then he had a six iron clean over the green, probably lost the ball, and I'm three up. <laughs> you see, and I managed to lose that game. What how? I lost. Well, I, well, I'll tell you how. I played the fourteenth carelessly. Uh, I didn't have a good tee shot and I reckoned that Jimmy, from where he was off the tee he was too far left, but he could reach the green I assumed he would get a four which was a stupid thing to do because he took five and eventually I took six he then got a birdie at the short one into the corner. Mm-hmm. He got uh, a birdie at the sixteenth. He uh, then got a birdie at the seventeenth, and uh, lo and behold, we come to the eighteenth, and I'm on the green, but I'm one die, I'm one down. And uh, the, uh, uh, yes, I'm on, I'm on the green. I'm on the green, eighteenth, and he's in the bunker on the left. The one you're talking about with Joe Brown and the the heel mark. Mm. So Jimmy's looking at this thing, and I think this is a horrible bunker shot because it's level with the green and you can't really use a putter. uh, uh, Jimmy did use a putter and put it there. <laughs> to a foot, to a, to a foot, yes. He just putted it out. I reckon, sorry, I reckoned you couldn't hit a sandwich because you couldn't hit it easy enough, right. you know. And he hits, he hits this out to there. I did. And he beat me one up. And he played Fergie in the next round. Who's
1: uh, Mick Ferguson?
9: Billy. Billy. Billy Ferguson. W-J-J. Oh, W J J is up there. And I'll Mr. tell you, Malone. I'll tell you, Billy was very upset Mr. at the finish at the finish of this match because Billy Ferguson was two up and two to. On on Jimmy Brown, and at the 16th, the 17th hole at Clarn and was knows there's a great par four down the round the lake, with a two tier green if I remember right, and uh, Fergie bailed out, went way left off the t- off the tee. No, sorry, Fergie was down the middle of the tee, right down the middle, 70, 80 yards short of the green normal. Jimmy was way over, he didn't want to get the lake Jimmy was way over where there are trees now way over on the left in the practice ground ground. and he fired this thing in and he pushed it onto the beach so it looked all over, that was it so the barrel Fergie comes along and he's Fergie, like this here sort of thing, you know well I've got your man now and he played uh, what was in Jimmy Bruin's uh, uh, opinion, a lousy cowardly shot, he told me he says, and I punished him for it he says, Fergie tried to play a run up with a seven iron, through the gully and up onto the green slightly mishit it, stuck in the gully so Bruin goes in onto the shingle and like that there and there was a cloud of stuff stones boulders not, not boulders but small there were, there were small pebbles like that there there from the hole won the hole and then Fergie went in the bushes at the 18th and uh, Bruin hit a six iron at the tie hole to there so of
3: course,
9: to a foot off. to a foot game over and he found himself then in the semi-final yeah. playing JB Carr Jimmy Bruin Jimmy yeah. Bruin yes I played JB Carr and it was a ding-dong battle, and a half a Kerry and a Cork were out watching in the the semi-final. And it came to 18, and Bruin was uh, somewhere somewhere in that bunker on the left-hand side again, somewhere he shouldn't have been, chipped to about 5 feet, or whatever, chipped to about 5 or 6 feet. Joe was just over the back of the green, chipped down to 4 feet. Bring us up, holds it, and then picks Joe's ball up. Didn't want to go any further. He said he was afraid Joe wouldn't miss it, and he'd have to play. He'd have to play on. <laughs> yes, that he gave the Joe, That man. was the semi-final because remember Joe beat Eric O'Brien in the final. Nah. Meet Eric I O'Brien. Mean, you look going so
1: to was see just, it was He Again. was only playing
9: it for fun, but he just happened. To he played playing. it for fun, and he uh, um, he invited Fergie and me down. Then after he'd beaten Fergie, he'd beaten me in the morning, beat Fergie in the afternoon, and he invited us down to it's his okay. caravan. And we're down there and sat with his wife, and he we had coffee and cake and all sorts of nice things, you know. And a
10: good old. He's a
9: real gentleman, and he told me the stories about you know him hitting four irons of the rough were all rubbish. He says, nobody can hit a four-iron at a stuff that height. He says, people thought because they played a drive in a four-iron at the hole that I needed a four-iron. He says, you only need a wedge off my (laughs) (laughs) T-shirt. Well, you you would believe that, Norman, I suppose. You know, he genuinely told me that. That was my experience of, of, of Jimmy. Great stuff. The other one, it wasn't a direct experience. I was at Royal Birkdale. Uh, playing in the uh, European finals, you know, the uh, oh, Senior Cup. Yeah. Oh. Uh, oh, we, we qualified and we were playing yeah. some Scottish team or other. Uh, it was the very early days of it. It was just, uh, it was just Wales, England, Ireland and Scotland. And I was in the pro shop and I was talking to the professional, who was a fellow called Bobby Halsall, and Correct. you would know him. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, right. he, we, we got to, so it was raining, and he got to talking to us, and he said, I said, tell us about Jimmy Brown, 1936 boys champion. Well, he says, I'll tell you about that. He says, he arrived here, he says, and in 1936, you know, somebody arriving in Birkdale, it was like somebody coming from the far side of the moon, coming mm. from Ireland, mm. you know, and he arrived with his mother. And his mother came into the shop and she said, uh, could I get somebody to play round with my son, he's 16 years old? And he said, well, i tell you what, give me 20 minutes, he says, I'll clear up in the shop, I'll go out and I'll show him round, I'll play round with him. So he arrived on the first tee at Birkdale, in those days it was a short hole, you know, it was 200 yards and uh, uh, Jimmy Bruin sort of uh, said to him or oh, he said to Jimmy uh, well now a nice three wood would be maybe a good thing to start well he says you know he says uh, back home in Ireland he says with the hold at that length I would hit a five iron well Bobby says well I tell you what you hit your bloody five iron you know <laughs> and he says he hit it in the back of the crane he says and this sort of thing went on the whole way round and he said, I went in with we no money in those days. I went to the local bookie. And I said, what price? He says, on an Irishman from Cork for the British Boys Championship. Oh, oh you sorry. got astronomical odds. Ten bob, five bob, with all the bookies round the place, he got all these. And he says, after he walked out of every one of them, he says, take no more bets on this boy. You see, nobody got him past, I think nobody got him past the 15th green. Right. Yeah. You know, nobody yeah. got him past the 15th Chris grade.
1: O'Connor Senior, tells it because he was a great friend yes. of Hallsauce. Yes, told, he told yes. Me
9: that story. Well, Bobby told me this, you know, word for word. He said nobody got him past, and strangely enough, that was 10 years later, that's where he won the amateur. Yeah,
1: came back in 46.
9: Yeah, back in 46, oh, you, know. you
1: know. He beat a guy called Bobby Sweeney in the final. Or Robert Sweeney. Sweeney. mm mm-hmm. Sweeney. Who many Robert people, Sweeney. yeah,
9: I mean, he was like...
1: The precursor to Frank oh, Stranahan. Yeah, he, well? he, he was a, he was a playboy, class, playboy, yeah. classy amateur. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the famous story, Bruce Critchley was telling me a couple of weeks ago when I was interviewing him for the book. He said that um, in 1940, no, during in the late 40s, he lived in Florida and was a member of Seminole. And Ben Hogan would come down in early January, and it was winter there. And he would effectively warm up for the season. But because he hadn't played for a little while, it would take him a you know maybe a week to just kind of get back into the groove. And uh, they would play for money every day himself mm-hmm. and Bobby Sweeney. And Bobby Sweeney started... Uh, he'd, he'd win the first couple of matches that they would play. And it transpired then, after about the fifth day of losing money, Hogan said, you're going to have to give me a shot. <laughs> so they put that on... On the gravestone of Bobby Sweeney. I, I gave Hogan a shot. She gave Hogan a shot. <laughs> it's quite an epitaph, isn't it? Well, a little bit of gold there from the late, great Brian Hoey, who passed away on the 14th of December last. And just a magnificent story about playing Bruin. Can you believe it? In Bruin's last ever appearance in the Irish Amateur Close Championship down in Killarney. TBC as he was known and loved around the country, Thomas Brian Caldwell Hoey. And uh, our sympathies go to his lovely wife, Pearl, and to sons Edward and Michael, who so many of us know through his own golfing exploits as a winner on the European Tour and on the Challenge Tour and a former Irish Open amateur champion and, of course, a winner of the amateur championship back in 2001. So his name is on the trophy there with the late, great Jimmy Bruin, whose centenary we mark in this part five and uh, this special centenary series of podcasts and the video which kicked it all off on the centenary date, the 8th of May. So, yeah, so many golden stories, so many great players, so many reflections. And uh, given Brian Hoey's Belfast connections and indeed the fact that Jimmy Bruin was born in Belfast...
11: There'll be days like this When you don't need to worry There'll be days like this When no one's in a hurry There'll be days like this When you don't get betrayed By that old Judas kiss. Oh, my mama told me There'll be days like this When you don't need an answer, there'll be days like this
3: When you don't need a chance, there'll
11: be days like this When all the parts of the puzzle start to look like they fit then I must remember, there'll be days
5: like this
11: Remember, there'll be days like this. When no one steps on my dreams. There'll be days like this when people understand what I mean. There'll be days like this when you ring out the changes of how everything is. Well, my mama told me there'll be days like this. There'll be days like this. Oh, my mama told me there'll be days like this. Oh, my mama told me there'll be days like this. Oh, my mama told me there'll be days like
1: this. So it was fantastic catching up with Claire Collin earlier and a hugely decorated career as an amateur and Curtis Cup honours and Irish titles And coming from Cork Golf Club and we did make mention of the fact that she was captained on both occasions in that Curtis Cup side by another Cork lady and one of the great servants of the game and a lady of distinction and that is Ada O'Sullivan. How are you Ada?
10: I'm great, Shane. Thank you very much. And these surreal times, very, very good. Thank you very much.
1: Surreal is right. But I mean, what's real is that uh, you got a nice little honour from the ILGU at the start of the year. Isn't that right?
10: I did, Shane. Um, I was absolutely thrilled. It was something that I'd never, ever expected, which I always think is what makes these awards even nicer. Yeah. Uh, As I said, it was I've had i was, I've been extremely lucky with the people I've met and the career I've had both as a player and as administrator and I have to say you know I do feel privileged and honoured to have been given that honour uh, of Life honorary membership back in um, I say back in January so you know it, it's lovely it's lovely to have particularly when it comes from your peers at the end, particularly when it's something that is comes totally out of the blue and unexpected.
1: Yeah, and coming from Cork with its rich tradition in sport, but you know this is uh, a great place for golf, as we've been kind of covering throughout the series. Um, you played girls' international golf for for Cork or for for Ireland, should I say? And uh, and then on went on to, to play for the the full amateur home international team, and um, you know you've played in all sorts of championships, European Championships, and. It's something that's in your blood but you've you've taken it a long way Ada.
10: Um yes as I say it's I started golf I got my first handicap in 1978 and I was selected to play for the senior team, as we call it, the ladies' full team in
3: 1982.
10: Mm. So it's a kind of shot to shot to fame, if you know what I mean, fairly quickly. Yeah. And I suppose like anybody, when you're young, you you just take it in your stride. You actually don't really realise what you've achieved until you're probably looking back some, probably even 20 years later, because you just take it in your stride. And it's like any uh, keen sports person, you just want to get better. You're enjoying it. Um, you're enjoying, as I say, the challenges that it brings. And you're, it's a case of, you know, you're trying to see how can I improve? Uh, where can we get better? Cork, as you say, is steeped in, in sporting tradition from our Christy rings, as I say, to our Christy Cantillon rugby players and, as I say, mm-hmm. obviously to uh, Jimmy Bruin. We've had so many, so many, uh, you know, and I suppose we are known as the Rebel County uh-huh. and we're always there looking for challenge and we're also there <laughs> trying to Outclass or outdo the opposition. That's, that's, it's in our blood, I have no doubt about it. it is, you know. And it, There's very few sporting people in Cork or people in Cork who just don't follow some sport, even if they don't play it. I think they're keenly interested.
1: Yeah, we made mention of Tom Egan, who passed away recently, a legend of Monkstown, which is your club, and a fabulous right. club overlooking Cork Harbour and uh, a rich history there, um, you know, and a great club spirit. And you kind of need that. I mean, everything starts at the club, and it starts with maybe parents or maybe a relative who can encourage you to play. But there's such a great um, platform for kids to get involved, boys and girls, and there's team golf. And there's just fun to be had through golf. But then there's there's uh, there are obvious uh, avenues with which you can explore. And you, you certainly maximized all of that, it would seem.
10: Yes. Uh, firstly, if I can say, just uh, going back on Tom, Tom Egan, it is very sad to see the man passing away. Uh, and he was a gentleman to his fingertips, an icon of our club in Monkstone. um as is his family, you know, after, with him. You know, a very a man who always stayed in the background, you're talking about, you know, it was just a, bu- a beautiful golfer, a very talented golfer as well. Mm. But um, I think, and he, he would have been, you know, he played with Cork in Senior Cup and obviously an Irish close winner and East of Ireland winner. But, um, you know, you talk about uh, Jimmy Jimmy Bruin and I just think his what he has brought to golf is probably incalculable in the fact that he probably brought this excitement, let's say call it like your Tiger Woods back, if you know what I mean, in mm. the era. I would no doubt that led to several others, if you know what I mean, taking up the game of golf. I know my late dad, Phil, took up golf in 1964, the year I was born, mm. and uh, became very involved in junior golf in our club with uh, the likes of Pat Murphy, who was a professional at the time. But golf is such a lonely sport that I actually believe, you know, people do better when you play team sport. Well, for me, it has worked out that way anyway. Yeah. i always much preferred team than I did anything else. Um, and then we would have had great players like in Cork when I was involved, which, you know, you would have had the Rona Brennans, you would have had the Van Higginses, yeah. and you would have E.R. or Eileen Rose's as which was known <laughs> as it. Yeah. Then it was a case of everybody just wanted to get better and better, and that was it. You also would have had, say, you know, great to see the likes of John McHenry, you're talking Walker, Cup player Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and this was all, at the time as well, you said junior, or called junior golf, was very important in clubs, and I think in fairness to the people who had the foresight, you know, that knew that needed to be invested in it, and like, I can remember travelling around, getting lifts and high ace fans to different golf tournaments, (laughs) and you were delighted to get there, you know what I mean, you (laughs) were gone for the day, you were safe, and you had great fun, and that, I think that's what golf, to me, has always been about is to have great fun. Yeah. Yes, there's a serious side to it, but if you're not enjoying it, then it's not for you. It, it's yeah. as simple as that. But I suppose I was being, I was very lucky from, as they're starting off from Girls' Internationals, my first Girls' International team was 1980. And mm. um, you're talking about, you know, and then I decided to retire from the game in 1997. So, mm. you know, I had a wonderful call. at 17 years, you're talking about, of but it. it was absolutely brilliant. And then, you know... I don't know why I got involved in the administration side, but it's usually one of those things we get a tap on the shoulder to say, would you be interested in doing X or Y? Mm. Um, and I suppose, you know, I did. I wanted to get involved with it. junior golf with my love initially, and then it kind of just blossomed from the you know what I mean? from there. So, you know, I feel very privileged and very lucky because I can remember one time being told by um, the great Howard Bennett, who I'm sure you know, yeah, and Howard is a great coach. Mm. and Howard was a man who revamped my swing for me, you know, he, I said to him in 1991 I was putting in such hard work mm. that I wasn't getting the rewards, and he had been employed at the time uh, by the GUI, and uh, went to Howard, you're talking about it, and he said, you know, if you're prepared to put in the work, you know, he said, then you'll see, you know what I mean, the fruition, mm. and I think that's the beauty of sports, I think any sports person, if you put in the work, you know, you have to stick with it, you will see, if you know what I mean, and you will reap, if you know what I mean, the benefits of fame, and that's yeah. where I feel very lucky to achieve that, went on and achieved more than if you know what I mean in, in my own way. But you know, did I ever think I'd become involved with the uh, Vagliano trophies or spiritual Santos or your World Team Championships or the Curtis Cups? If you know what I mean? Absolutely not. It was never something I had dreamed of. I'd wanted to become a professional golfer back in the mid 80s, but mm. obviously with recession and it wasn't the right time. Um, and then just in, in hindsight, I don't think I would have been ever made, you know, or cut out for professional golf. I don't think I was tough enough for it. Mm. And that you needed to be. But, uh, you know, golf are, has been a fantastic uh, sport for me. I've made fantastic friends, lifetime friends. And, you know, I heard you uh, talking to Patricia Medill and to yeah. her sister Maureen Medill. You know, you take the likes of the Mary McKenna's or the Claire Howarhans you're talking about, or the Lillian Beehans; These are all people who are great friends, you know what I mean, to this yeah, day. So, and brilliant. again, I feel very privileged to know these people.
1: Yeah, that's oh, phenomenal. It is phenomenal, really. And um, you mentioned so many names there, but uh, if I can throw in one more, Anne Heskin and maybe her sister, Una, yes. um, you yeah. know, who <clears throat> I've just become a, a kind of uh, aware of. Just through caddying for my mother and different things in in Cork, and it's been phenomenal. Just getting to know all these great ladies um, who give back so much as well, you know. And it's 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 astonishing. And like I know that you were very well aware of um, Nell Bruin from a young age, I would imagine, because she gave back, you know. And after Jimmy's untimely passing, you know, she got heavily involved, and it was a it was a great release for her, I would imagine, just in terms of. Uh, putting her energies into the sport that her husband was so in love with and um, created such a magic with as well, you know, and he was he was the first icon. He was the first superstar of golf, but when he passed away untimely, um, you know, on the 3rd of May 1972, it left a void. And I, I'm, presumably it was a huge void for her, but then she gave back and became president of the ILGU, became president of the LGU, and uh, is still alive today. Will be hundred and two at the end of July. Unbelievable.
10: Yeah, as you mentioned, Nell, uh, Nell, an absolute lady and a legend, as you rightly say, in her in her own way. Um, I use the word a lady because that's what she's always been. Always so great, gracious. Always so welcoming. Always treats you with a smile. Um, always has time to chat to people. Um, and I have to say, when I got involved, as I say in golf in the late seventies early eighties, um I probably met Nell through my late mom Mags. and um, um you know, always a lady when you think of Cork gossip, you just think of Nell and then you also think of Betty Ryan, but as Nell would have been my first person to would have been down there, and I can remember being um over in in um Royal Liverpool golf, when Nell was president of the LGU mm. and Princess Margaret was coming, uh, you're talking about, to visit. Mm. Um, at the British Open was on, that's the ladies amateur was on, mm. and um, your championship and Princess Margaret was coming. And I can remember just seeing the uh, outriders and you're talking about the car coming mm. and Nell standing there graciously to greet her. And I just thought, what a proud moment it was for Nell, but it also was an extremely proud moment for me, the fellow Cork person. It really, really was. Uh, but um, Nell, as you say, gave so much back to the ILGU, and then obviously advanced to the LGU, the Ladies Golf Union, which was the governing body. Um, you're talking about. But you know she's incredible. She's in the home down in St. Luke's, and uh, that's where Tom Tom Egan had his had his uh, uh, last few years. But uh, I haven't seen Nell in a few years, but I did have a great chat with her probably about three years ago and just as I say, still a lady. You know, I, mm. I think, again, somebody that has just given so much back, uh, any Cork person would say, yeah, they'll, they'll know Nell Brun, You know what I mean? And mm. what she has done and her family as well. Absolutely. No doubt about it.
1: Brilliant. Um, can't thank you enough. It's so great to, to talk to you. Congratulations on the honorary uh, life membership of the ILGU. I know there's... Big changes afoot, it's all becoming unified, but the Irish Ladies Golf Union, uh, second oldest golf union in the world, and you have been a fabulous representative representative of, uh, you know, the whole ethos of Irish Ladies Golf, and uh, a great player, but a great administrator, a great captain, and a uh, great cork woman too, Ada. So, uh, <laughs> listen, thanks very much for joining me, and I, I do want to play a piece of music, so perhaps... Uh, you might introduce our next little piece and um, I look forward to seeing you soon. But uh, what what are we going to play here? Uh,
10: something that springs to mind, mind Jane. I always love, uh, from the life of Brian, always think on the bright side of life.
3: <laughs> okay.
1: You. Yeah. yeah, you got to keep it positive. You got to keep it positive. And uh, if I'll finish with one quote from Howard Bennett, which I'm sure you heard, and uh, it's something that Paul harrington lived by through his early days of getting coached by Howard he says if you can do today what others won't you will do tomorrow what others can't kind of brilliant Uh, but always always look on the bright side of life keep it positive and uh, just put the head down and put the work in and great things can happen
10: absolutely there's no doubt about that the work goes in the results will come thanks Shane
1: well the real golden ticket undoubtedly is to get a walker cup cap and especially if you come from these shores it takes pride of place and not many monster men have achieved that and one of the few is the great Arthur Pierce, who was the number one amateur in the country back in 1980, and a man who won four major titles on these shores, and latterly won the British Senior Open Amateur Championship back in 2007, uh, which was nicely timed given the uh, launch of uh, the book, Legends in Their Spare Time, uh, later on that year, in what turned out actually to be a phenomenal year for, for Irish golf on so many different levels. But um, Arthur uh, was in fine form when I spoke to him not so long ago uh, in the build-up to this Bruin celebration. And we spoke about the importance of getting the nod from Great Britain and Ireland, which he had achieved before, uh, representing the four-man GB&I team at the Eisenhower Trophy in Lausanne the previous year. But he got his cap in 1983 and uh, lined up against the likes of Jay Siegel and... Brad Faxon and, well, obviously a really strong American team. Bob Lewis was there as well. But uh, it was a big moment for Arthur, the pride of Tipperary. Arthur, how big an honour was it to get the Walker Cup cap for you? Um, you know, knowing who had gone before you from Munster, in particular the great Jimmy Bruin, whose centenary we were now celebrating.
13: Well, I suppose in, in, in amateur golf, the Walker Cup, for anyone from these islands it's probably the biggest um reward you can get in your golf life. I mean I don't um it was something you would dream about Walker getting the Walker Cup. And there were there weren't that too many Monster men. I think we had Jimmy Broon and then Pat Mulcair Um uh I trying to think who else from Monster you'd know now. I think you're about right with about those that. two. Is that about it? It's about it. Jim. Yeah, the three of us, yeah. So, I mean, it was a great honour for me and I'm sure it was a great honour for them as well. Um, Jimmy Brune and um, I was lucky to meet Jimmy Bruin, uh about three weeks before he died. And I was a student in college at the time. We were playing a match against the island in Cork. And um, someone said to me, that's the great Jimmy Brune over there um, hitting golf balls. So I said, gosh... I'd love to watch that man. I've, You know, I'd read so much about him and growing up he was a real golfing idol. So I went over and we got chatting and I had a great chat with him and an extremely nice man, lovely man. And the swing was exactly as I had envisaged, you know. It was exactly the way I had. I, I, I had the picture in my head. And, you know, today you, you look at guys like Matthew Wolf. And, you know, he's probably identical to Jimmy Broon. There, there wouldn't be very much between them the way they both swing the club. And, you know, it's all about getting back into the golf ball square. And Matthew Wolf does that, but so did Jimmy.
1: There was a magic, though, to the whip. Um, it was a, it was such a unique action, but there was this natural timing and there was, a I don't know, an athleticism to it. I mean, how would you categorise... That ability, you know, to, to actually really capture lightning in a bottle, in other words, with regard to that timing. Because you either have that or you don't.
13: Yeah, I mean, obviously he's a very good athlete. Um, you know, it's probably something you, you would say to people. If you have the, the ability to take the club up and loop it and drop it to the inside, it is not very easy to hit a bad shot. But then again, it's not very easy to to take the club up and drop it to the inside, loop it and drop it to the inside. A lot of ability, uh, know what you're doing. And Jimmy did it his way, found it worked for him and uh, became one of the greatest players, I would say, could have been probably one of the greatest players of all time had he turned pro. But then again, he, he suffered a lot from injuries and, you know, his career was cut short. And to think that between the age of 16
1: and 19 he did so many extraordinary things and that's when the comparisons with Bobby Jones were so much in evidence. But then obviously the World War um, put paid to a lot of that. But then it wasn't really the done thing for a lot of leading amateurs or amateur internationals to turn pro in that era.
13: No, it wasn't. And even in my year, I remember um, people just didn't turn pro. Um, uh, you know, it wasn't something you felt... That there was really a career in. I mean, golf change has changed. I saw the change about 1980 when TV came in, and um, you you could see more and more guys turning pro, the likes of Nick Falder Sandy Lyle. Otherwise, we would we could go to the home internationals one year after the next and find that out of the Scottish team, maybe two might have changed. English team, maybe three different, but half the team would be 30 plus. You know, it, it being that none of them turned pro, so there was very little um, rotation, really.
1: Quick um, link as well. I mean, you came so close yourself to matching Bruin. Well, you did by getting the Walker Cup cap, and then obviously um, fellow Munster men John McHenry and Owen O'Connell followed in quick succession just later in the decade. Uh, you got your cap in 83. But in 1980, you just bring it up there, and it springs to mind, uh, you came so close at Royal Porth Call getting to the semi-finals of the amateur championship. And you know, in the book there's that lovely photo of you making a speech as a as a bronze medalist. Um to win an amateur championship, like it's the highlight really for, for people of your um ability.
13: Yeah, in in those days I suppose the British amateur would have been the it was the it was considered actually a major championship. Um, When people won amateur championships, they considered them majors. Joe Carr always considered his uh, amateur championships as majors. And they were, in the early days, Bobby Jones, all those guys considered um, his US amateurs and his British amateur championships as majors. You know, it has changed now with professional golf. But, you know, it it was the ultimate prize for an amateur to win. And... um, kind of slightly change maybe now doesn't carry the same kudos as it did then you know but um, I think that's what money has brought into the game of golf Um, not so sure that things will change in in the future but you know um, I, I can see that professional golf is probably going through a difficult period now and so is professional sport in general you know I'm not so sure that things will continue in the same vein as they have in the past you know so maybe people will get back to enjoying playing golf for fun
1: yeah a bit more um how would you call it um the purity of the sport needs to be celebrated a bit more which is another debate but just as we wrap up because um you're a career amateur and you know you had 99 caps for ireland and you know you won so many majors on the domestic circuit you got to the semi-finals of the the amateur championship as you said um but then you got another lease of life as a senior and to win in such a, an incredible year for Ireland, 2007, with Harrington winning the Open, Rory becoming, you know, the next Bruin, leading amateur and then just taking off from there, Joe Carr getting nominated for the World Golf Hall of Fame. So many things happened in 2007, but you claimed your R&A title. You got the gold medal, Arthur.
13: Yeah, I mean, that was obviously, t- you know... Um I wouldn't consider it in the same bracket as the amateur championship but to win any R&A championship is something that we would all aspire to and I'm certainly very proud of the fact that I won the British seniors and um, you know it, it was great fun I enjoyed it I enjoyed my senior career then playing for Ireland and European championships and we played in the team I think for five or six years we were unbeatable Um I remember we led the qualifiers in the European Championships by 26 shots one year. And I I enjoyed that part of it, playing senior international golf. It was good fun, very relaxed and meeting nice people, you know.
1: And just to finish, because Harrington is very glowing of you and your striking ability. And on record about your incredible uh, ability with the driver especially. And the old wind, the old left or right wind, you just had a... You had it on a string for some reason. You, you were the Hogan of, of Irish amateur golf in some respects.
13: Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I, I learned. I, I remember in, in Tipperary Golf Club, we had a greenkeeper, Paddy Power. And he was the only one in Tipperary Golf Club. We had a nine-hole course in those days. And I used to go out to the golf course very early in the mornings. And Paddy would have a, ball, a, a line of balls teed up for me. And I every morning I made a point of hitting 60 drivers. And I suppose it became so good with the driver. until the only time of the day I could practice my driving because um, we had no driving range. And um, if members were out later on, you couldn't do it. So we'd do it early in the morning and Paddy would collect the balls for me. But I enjoyed doing that. I did it every day. And the reason I did it was Joe Carr, I remember Joe Carr telling me, that if you want to be a great player you've got to learn to drive the golf ball well and I heard stories afterwards that that was the one area Joe's cars and game that wasn't quite good he, despite all the drives he hit himself <laughs> <laughs> so but he hit every other aspect of the game off but um, Joe could go anywhere yeah. long and crooked yeah. pleasure talking to you Arthur and well, well done on everything that you've achieved thank you very much Shane
1: A.D. Pierce, Arthur Darcy Pierce. I remember reading in the uh, golfing log uh, one time because Arthur was, I think, five times the leading amateur at the Irish Open. Uh, he won three leading amateur awards at the British, uh, the senior British Open. And let me see, he was uh, obviously a great amateur back in the day in 1977, playing in the uh, Open Championship at Turnberry, qualifying for that. And... Just a, a phenomenal amateur from these shores. But 1983, I suppose, was the big one because that's when he got the Walker Cup cap. So great to talk to him about that. Uh, the Americans won that one at Hoylake, where Rory won his Open, where Joe Carr won his amateur championship. And, you know, some rich connections between Ireland and uh, the UK with regard to the RNA championships and team competitions. But uh, the US were the winners of the Walker Cup in 1983, back in May, late May of that year. And the number one song in the US charts in the week of that Walker Cup at Hoylake was this from David Bowie. All-Ireland Cups and Shields are just huge in Ireland and they are the lifeblood of each and every club and there are some amazing competitions for members of different handicap standards within Irish clubs uh, that can lead you all the way to a precious All-Ireland title for men and for women and in the case of the men, uh, the Cups and Shields are just um, fantastic really for bringing a club together and just the support that it creates and the excitement level if you progress. And I was fortunate to come from Clonmel Golf Club, which won the Junior Cup in 1978 in Galway. I was a bit young, but uh, the fact that the club won two Jimmy Bruin Shields in 1985 in Kilkenny and again in 1988, crucially at Cork Golf Club, well, they, they left a huge impression on me and to be in Cork in 1988 when our team won and to have had the little bit of a fascination with Jimmy Bruin and to do it at his home club was was just amazing. And, you know, Padraig Harrington speaks very highly of the Cups and Shields and, of course, he played in so many of them himself. But more importantly, the fact is that his dad was part of a very, very important a team that won the Jimmy Shield back in 1978, also at Galway Golf Club. And it just makes such an impression on the club. And certainly when you're as young as Stackstown was, because Stackstown uh, was a Garda club uh, made by members of the police force, because a lot of them could not get into clubs in Dublin because of the culture, um, which thankfully has changed. But it has really kind of um, led to a remarkable kind of development within that club, ...of them doing their own thing... ...buying a bit of land... ...and Pawdrick will tell you... ...that he and his brothers... ...his four older brothers... ...they were up there with their mother as well... ...and father... ...lifting stones off the, the fields... ...that would be cultivated into fairways... ...so within a couple of years... ...for them to win a national uh, cup or shield... ...in this case the Jimmy Bruin Shield, ...was was absolutely huge... And ...then you look at what Pawdrick has done... ...and it's amazing... He's such an incredible ambassador for golf on this island, never mind all of the home countries. And he's an RNA ambassador, justifiably so. And, you know, I often think of his dad, who I was fortunate to meet once or twice before he passed away in 2005. And Paddy Harrington, we you know, was from Cork, where Jimmy Bruin was from. And. Paddy Harrington was in two All-Ireland Senior Football Finals for Cork, uh, but never got past the winning post, if you will. So he finally got an All-Ireland title in golf in the Jimmy Brune Shield. It's amazing, isn't it, really, when you think of it. And, you know, just the connections within Irish sport, they run deep. Jimmy Bruin was born in 1920, and also in that year, probably the greatest hurler of all time from Cork, the legend of Glen Rovers, Christy Ring, he was born in that year too. So connection is very much a part of our culture in Ireland and sport is a massive part of everything that we do. So I'm going to leave it to Pauldry to kind of just talk about the significance of his club's win when he was a little boy in the Jimmy Shield, And also, you know, just remember this is a guy who we all remember from, well, many of us do, from the kind of junior circuit and what he did to make himself better and the determination level that it took to become the champion that he has become and the ambassador that he is and becoming the first European in over a century to win two Open Championships in a row. And we'll never forget the speech he made as well in Carnoustie Thanking the RNA, he knew so many of them so well because he was very much part of GB&I teams as a, as a junior and of course as a full amateur, playing in three successive Walker Cups, and he won his Irish Open amateur title in Foto Island, where Nell Bruen was significant in her input into the development of the club, and Podrick finally got his hands on the AIB. Or should I say the Irish close title um, in 1995 at Lahinch, uh, just ahead of that final appearance in the Walker Cup, where he and Jody Fannigan beat Tiger Woods and John Harris, and then Padraig obviously signed on the dotted line, became a pro, and look what he's achieved. So it's all about connection. It's all about development, and golf is one of our shining lights as a sport internationally for very good reason because of the history and the tradition and the heritage and the legacy and uh Podrick's kind of special but he also recognizes how special Jimmy Bruin was.
4: So I would have first heard of Jimmy Bruin I've probably heard of him in the 70s my, my father won the, was part of the win, winning Jimmy Bruin shield team in Staxtown in 1978 probably didn't mean a whole lot to me at that stage I know it was a big deal in the club then in the eighties is when it really came home to me. The late eighties. I used to play a lot of scratch cups, uh, and Jimmy Brown had won them all. And this name kept cropping up, and the the miracle things he did in the golf course. He used to hit it a prodigious distance, drive it unbelievable distance, and you know they, they were kind of like fairy tale stories. So I was never too sure. And everybody always said they always had a little comment at the end. Oh, he had a big loop in his swing, and it kind of discounted them. So you know it was one of those things. You you re- really you didn't really think too much about it like you kind of put him in a category oh he was a big hitter and not as good a player but then in the 90s probably even 2000s is when I started to to see his golf swing and learn more about and and what people mistook about a swing for this loop they could only see the loop but wow, he had a great golf swing. He unbelievable position through impact. His body worked perfectly all the way throughout the golf swing. And, and it's a shame that I didn't realise it in the 80s and learn more from it. Uh, it's certainly, you know, body position. Yes, the club went in, his hands went in, the club went out in the back so That was what he did. You wouldn't copy it, but once it's normal and natural and he rerouted the club in the downswing, everything about his downswing from shoulder down was just perfect. Perfect coming into impact really got like a superb strike on the golf ball and it's definitely something i would have learnt a lot from if i had paid attention or maybe if i got the right advice when i was younger Uh, and it's definitely a swing i now look back at actually and and will often look at it and and try and copy positions because his his body uh, his body work was second to none and, and clearly he was very powerful well ahead of his time
0: You're listening to Shane O. on the radio, which is a Niche Media production. Any and all unauthorised use or broadcast of the material contained herein will be in breach of copyright. This centenary celebration of Jimmy Bruin is brought to you in association with AIG, serving the car and home insurance needs of Ireland's golfers.
1: So Brune was the boy wonder and uh, what a boy wonder as well. Between 1936 and 1939, what he achieved was just just beyond belief, really. And he became Worldwide News. And then we've had other boy wonders like Norman Drew, who we spoke to in part three. Phenomenal man who'll turn 88 uh, this month. And I suppose then you could look at the likes of Ronan Rafferty, who was part of um, our Brune exploration in part two. And in and around that uh, period when Ronan Rafferty was this true boy wonder, there was another young fella in Cork making waves, winning the Irish Utes on a number of occasions, came from Douglas Golf Club in County Cork, or in Cork City effectively, and I'm sure was influenced by Brune. Good afternoon to John McHenry. How are you, John?
14: Hi, Shane. Very well, thank you. You You were
1: about 16 when you were winning the Irish Utes, I'd say, in about 1980, is that right?
14: That's correct. That's correct up in Candy Boy. I travelled up there. Um, obviously, uh, I was hoping that uh, I could, um, you know, do well in the tournament. Started off with a, with, with a great round and, you know, held, held my nerve. And uh, I think I picked to the balls into the title that year.
1: Yeah. So 1980 or 16, the youths kind of, um, that is really 18 to 21 effectively is when they usually kind of have youths tournaments. Boys is up to 18. Um, So that was, was that a surprise to you? Was it a surprise to anyone? I mean, you were obviously a low handicapper playing at a Douglas and there was a lot of competition around the Cork area. So you were pretty tuned up, but still to do it at 16 was kind of special.
14: It it was. um, I I suppose that was really my first breakthrough in the national scene. I mean, I had played some boys golf, but uh, I, you know, I, I, I I had only played locally, really. I played a lot of events around Munster. Uh, this was my first big uh, national event. And I, I I just, you know, I think was, I, I had a good, strong short game and I, I, I was pretty straight off the tee. And, you know, again, I got off to a, a real good, strong start and uh, I just never looked back, really. And, um, you know, I remember coming down the stretch there. I had, a, I had a couple of holes there where I just maybe knocked over the back of the green or... Um, you know, I was um, a, little, a little bit nervous your first tournament, and Philip also breathing down your neck. But at the <laughs> same time, I I just uh, you know I just grounded it out nicely, and uh, you know it, it gave me great confidence.
1: And you came back and defended the following year.
14: Yes, up in Westport, and uh, you know probably the longest golf course. That, uh, you know was a massive course. I think that was a par seventy three, and um, again got off to a really strong start. I think I had I think I had built up a. It, it, the weather conditions were very, very poor and I think I think built up a very uh, big lead after two rounds and just pretty much uh, coasted in then uh, from there.
1: So that's two Irish youth titles on the spin age 16 and 17. What were the the dreams then and there or like were you kind of realistic about what you wanted to do or were you
14: dreaming big? I uh, No Shane, I think that um you know my game. I think you know while it was while it was pretty consistent, and I think that um, you know I was lucky enough that I was I had played a couple of Commercial Union World Cups uh, with Kevin McDade um, and I had also uh, you know I had got quite a bit of international experience at that time. I played a couple of um, European youths and stuff like that, uh, so I had a fair idea of what of what my standard was relative to. Uh, we say everything in Europe. I, I was good. I, I I was strong. I was very competitive, but I wasn't exceptional. And uh, you know, Colin Montgomery was hammering around at that time. And you know, I mean, we we would be trading blows with each other. Um, you know, I never saw Colin Montgomery as a superstar he became. Uh, yeah. You know, but then likewise, I never saw myself. You know, as being very far behind him either. You know, so you know, I must have been decent enough. But but I, I suppose really what I what I was to always you know, my goal really with golf was always to try and just keep going and just trying to see how far can I go with the game. Um, and, you know, I was lucky enough that I, that, that I had that platform for myself and I'm, I'm very grateful to my parents for that. But, uh, you know, Bruin, you'd always have been looking at Bruin and, and his history. Unfortunately, I never met him, but I knew, I know the family very well. I certainly met his wife quite a few times. And, you know, you know, those people, you know, obviously people who are long before your time, um, you, you know, their their stories are magnified quite a bit. But certainly mm. Bruin was one of those men that just lived up to all the hype and expectation.
1: And it's fair to say that he kind of really set the standard that anything could be achieved in golf, you know, and you could dream big, uh, no matter whether you were from Cork or from any corner of Ireland, that, um, you know, the big championships were there to be won. It's It's really down to the individual. I'm sure you'd probably go along with that.
14: Oh, very much so, and you know, I mean, I've been fortunate in my own career. You know, an author of the real superstars. They've come from very, very humble beginnings. Um, you know, so it it you don't have to you don't have to come up be brought up on a pristine golf course with um, the ability to hit thousands and thousands of golf balls to targets all over the place. You know, you just have a have to have a lot of ambition, a lot of creativity, and certainly a game that will stand up to pressure. And you know, I think in, in my time you know, the game has changed quite a bit now. But in my time, you would have had Lee Trevino, you would have had Nick Klaus, you would have had Ray Floyd, you would have had a lot of different players with, with totally unique swings. Whereas nowadays, it, it, you know, golf, golf swings tend to be quite cloned. Um, you know, the technology has improved dramatically. But, it, it, you know, you even have to look at Bruins swinging. It, it was his own man-made swing, but it, but he was able to repeat it under pressure. And I think that's the hallmark of a great player.
1: And coming from Cork, right, as a boy who... I don't know. Legend has it you and Junior Morris and all these guys were playing pitch and pot. That it was it was begun early, but then as you graduate yeah. into golf, you know there's a there's a system in place and there's a confidence as well that uh, big things can be explored through golf. And because of that system, there are championships to play in. There are levels from which to graduate, and it must have been an incredible fun ride. You know to kind of graduate. Slowly but surely, or in your case, fairly quickly and progressively, uh, through the ranks, and there were there were there were always little mountains to climb, but uh, you you seem to kind of handle that fairly fairly easily.
14: Yeah, I, you know, I mean, it's 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 funny, really. Um, you know, I suppose if, if if we look at the period between nineteen eighty and eighty seven, um, you know, which which was probably my amateur career, you know, it was a pretty quick move from, would say boys' golf to youth's golf, I would have played all of that th- through those years. Um, but then, you know, to try and make the senior team for Ireland w- w- was, a, was a bit of a hurdle that took me some time. Um, but making the breakthrough in championships, uh, you know, I seemed to start well and, and just not progress. And, you know, I certainly would say that I, I you know, I would have had a, a couple of speed bumps along the way. Uh, I was also in America at that time, and it was a new experience for me. So you know in, in the sense of golf being uh, opening doors to be able to travel and to be able to experience new cultures and new ways of life and so on, it hardened me. And I think that ultimately when I did succeed, I suppose uh, in in championships, um it, it was it was a product of about five years of trial and effort, improvement. Um, maybe the hardship of of failure, um, but but it, it just hardened me as a competitor. And you know, when I did have those opportunities, eventually, um, you know, thankfully, you know, in, in the south and in the Irish amateur, I never went to the 18th hole in any of my in any of my matches. Wow. So, you know, it, 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 I I was playing strong golf.
1: Yeah, and to be from you know, obviously from Cork, but. Uh... The big target is always to win the South, so you you achieve that. But to win the Irish Amateur Close at Royal Dublin eighty six, I mean, it puts you really in um, into the bigger kind of echelons. But it also kind of points to a potential uh, breakthrough as Walker Cup level. So that that must yeah. have been fascinating to be kind of in that in that zone at that time.
14: Yeah, it's it, it's funny really because I had played. I had played with the with the Great Britain and Ireland boys um, earlier, and uh, you know, I, I you know, I was winning Irish youth championships, and at that time, you, you know, they certainly the clock was very much looking at Britain in terms of talent and like fact. I should easily have I won three Irish youth titles, and yet I never played for the Great Britain and Ireland youths. You know, which I probably would have sort of it, it grinded with me. I'd won a European youth championship with Ireland as well, so yeah. you know, I mean, there's certainly I I would have felt that. But then, you know, I never really thought about the Walker Cup until I went on that run. I, I, you know, I knew I, I, I was playing well, but certainly, you know, winning those titles back-to-back, um, it gave me that platform. And at that point, uh, you know, Garth McGimsey, who was probably certainly one of the dominant players in Ireland during that period, I would have potentially have just succeeded him. I, I kind of tipped him off the Walker Cup panel and maybe put myself on, on it. But, you know, the Walker Cup itself... You know, to me, the, one of my greatest achievements would have been winning the European uh, Youth Championship. Sorry, the European Senior Championship with Ireland in Murmuth, and O'Neill yeah. and Owen O'Connell was part of that team. Yeah, but 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 certainly the Walker Cup. You know, in terms of history and pedigree, and uh, I, I think just circumstance. You look at all the great players in the world; they've all played the Walker Cup. So I'm yeah. very, I'm very, very lucky. And indeed, Jimmy Broome played it. you know, So I'm very, very lucky to be one of those people.
1: How 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 great was that for your family and um, like your dad knew Bruin and I presume your mum as well but um, you know to, to have that link in Cork to have won an Irish amateur close title to play on the Walker Cup I mean you know you'll have that forever John forever.
14: Oh no very much so and you know actually my dad says a great story that you know Jimmy Bruin was an honorary member of Douglas Golf Club now he, he he played all his competitive golf with Cork Golf Club but um you know, my father would regularly say that he used to go up to Douglas Golf Club to practice. And my father was a, was a big practicer in his time. He played off two handicap, but he would he would regularly practice out in the old third hole. Um, but you know, he would be there maybe just as Bruin was arriving, and yeah. you know, Bruin would come around the corner and see him there, and would have to go off somewhere else in the course to practice. But you know, it, you, you know, <laughs> like Jimmy Bruin was. You, you, you know just as joe carr would say is, is one of the leading lights in the amateur game around the world the name jimmy broon is synonymous with golf around the world and i think that uh you know coming from a small place like cork and 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 even you know when i was achieving some success you know to be to be compared or, or, or certainly to be talked about in the same circles you know i mean it's mind-blowing stuff but you know it's a great honor um and, and certainly would never have achieved anything like what he has achieved in the game. But but at the same time, you are coming from a small community, and that small community rallies around you as a Cork person. And, you know, at the time of the Walker Cup, certainly, um, you know, it was my time, and, and, and Cork rallies around me, and, and it was just a tremendous experience. I think that... Peter Addis is commenting in the Walker Cup about the Green Army that came over to, to support me, you know. So Sunningdale, yeah. know, Yeah, there was something like 160 people from Douglas went over for it. So, Brilliant. you know, it, it, it really was. And, you know, I suppose you're caught up in the moment. You don't necessarily remember a lot of that stuff. But but certainly when you reflect back on it, um, they, they're, they're some of the most enjoyable times of my golfing career.
1: Fabulous. And now you're, you're back at Douglas and... Uh... It's fantastic to be in your home city and to be giving back to the game, you know, at the place where you grew up and after such a a fascinating career, um, you know, in golf, uh, to be back home. uh, Like, there's got to be a lovely sense of satisfaction that, you know, because things, you know, everything is cyclical in some respects. And, you know, especially when you become a parent and, you know, and you've got all those responsibilities and you've got some very talented uh, young sportsmen uh coming up through the uh, McHenry family uh ranks uh so you got to nurture that but um also very important to kind of give back to the, the the youth of cork and the youth of the club and to keep it going because these are very testing times john
14: the, uh, you, absolutely Shane you know i mean first of all uh, you know i am a cork person um I'm a very proud Douglas man It's 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 been my club for all my life and uh, you know now that you're back there it, it is time to give back it is time to invest in the club it isn't time to invest in the younger people coming through you know I mean nobody gives me anybody more satisfaction than watching James Sugu win the British amateur last year I, I got to know him I was involved with the Munster Interprovincial team the previous year and I mm. got to know him and what a gentleman. But, you know, I mean, it, it is about giving back and it, and it is about maybe, you know, passing buttons and, you know, maybe passing on a little bit of experience, but certainly um, trying to improve, uh, you know, the game of golf in, in any capacity. And I think that more and more, you know, we are changing, golf is changing generations now as well, you know, so... Uh, the game of golf is changing with it. And, uh, you know, it it is important times, but golf, we only have to see what's happening at this moment in time with COVID-19 and the the reality of golf being one of the first games to come back and the passion that people have to come out and play again. It's just wonderful.
1: It is, it is. Well, listen, um, well done on everything and what you achieved as an amateur in those Bruin-like ways. Um, That's something to be very proud of, not only for you and your family, but, uh, you know, it kind of just copper fastens the notion that, you know, Ireland is a golfing, uh, I don't, what would you call it, a golfing mecca? It really is. And it's got such history and you're very much part of that, John. So listen, I want to just say thanks and um, congratulations on everything and love to Sylvia and all the, all the gang down there. And uh, hopefully as things return to normality, we'll see you down there soon as well. And um, listen, I'm going to play a bit of Coldplay for you because I know you're big into them. Or would you like Oasis? Actually, I've got two. I've got one or the other. So I've got two buttons to press. Which one are we going yeah, to go you for?
14: You pre- press either one. They're both great they're <laughs> bands and they're, they're great music. Shane, thank you very much. I love your podcast. And, you know, these are important. You know, it, it's important that, that the game of golf is also told and you tell it really well. So thank you very much, Shane.
1: Fair play, John. Thank you. Take care. So I was very fortunate to meet with David Ledbetter earlier on in the year in the Middle East and uh, we just happened to be at um, the uh, buffet one evening and then we sat down together and the the conversation immediately turned to Irish golf and Irish golf swings, but in particular Jimmy Bruin. What, what is your fascination with the swing of Jimmy Bruin, David? Well, the first, uh, first, uh, first thing I
15: heard about Jimmy Bruin was actually, I was really... John Jacob, and I've, you know, I've always been a bit of a history buff, and I've actually got an amazing collection of instructional books going back to the 19th century. And so when John Jacob said his mother took him to uh, Rawls and George's to watch Jimmy Bruin, and I think left off in three holes after a couple of profanities, his mother grabbed him out of there. So I thought, well, I want to see something about this, fella. But And yeah, I, I saw the swing many years ago, and you know, I've always been a big believer in... My philosophy through the years, whether it be a, a Faldo or an Ernie Els or a Nick Price in particular, of, of, of backswing being on one plane and then going on to a shallower plane. And so when I looked at Jimmy Brun, I said, my goodness, I mean, and you know, I've I, I, I read about him and just distances that he hit the ball back in the day with bad equipment. Uh, so I, I sort of looked into it a little bit more deeply. And, and you know, there are, there, are, there are swings which I like. In fact, you know, I wrote a book called The Ace Swing, And um, a few years ago. And it was ideally, if you look at most amateurs who sort of, you know, give it the old flat plate on the backswing and the over the top plate on the downswing. I mean, those swings, uh, the Calvin Peaks of the world, if you will, the Nick Price's, uh, uh, the the Jim Furick, where the plug gets steep and then shallow. Because, I mean, and it, it pretty much follows what. Baseball players do in batting because you know they get the bat up in the air and then they as they as the pitch comes it sort of bat shallow[s] onto the play and the ball's coming. Uh, but so uh, I just uh, it was really interesting to me. I mean, it was uh, and, and if you look today, I mean, you know, they've got this young player Matt Wolf who actually there's some similarities there. Matt Wolf maybe uh, may look a little bit more dynamic, but yet I mean, you, you, the beautiful thing about Jimmy Bruin was the fact that you know coming down he had such a perfect play, and I I felt that you know his swing that the the upness and the acrossness at the top it gave what I call life to his swing. I mean he had such fantastic rhythm, and so he was able to sort of create that motion which enabled him to sort of get the club into such a great position halfway down. And you know we actually you know um, Shane. I worked a little with this with with Lydia Coe. When Lydia Coe came to see us, uh, Lydia had a sort of a one-plane type swing, and she faded the ball. And I and you know she w- already was a really really good player. Won a couple of Canadian Opens, I think, as an amateur. But I said to her, I said, "Look, if you want to, if, if you really want to perform, I think in a game of golf, I mean, you need to add in." probably 20 yards. And so we got a steeper and we got a shallower and, and absolutely she put on 20 yards. Her iron play was phenomenal. She already had a great short game. And you know she won 13 tournaments including two majors. But the, the, the ironical thing was her father didn't like the look of the swing. Okay. So, and you know, it's it's sort of form over function, isn't it? You know what I'm saying? And so it's like, okay, you look at Jimmy Bruin and I mean, you look at it, and it's not a classic golf swing, nor is it Jim Furyk. But you look at the the repetitiveness of those swings and the, the ability they have to understand where the club head is. I mean, they were magnificent. So it's uh, you know, I, it's sort of uh, his swing is right up my alley. So maybe a, a little accentuated to some extent, but uh, my goodness me, I mean, I'd say if I think if amateurs were going to look at swings as far as being able to you know, get the club in position, coming down. I mean, even the great Jack Memphis had a pretty steep backswing, and then actually shattered on the downswing. So I've never been a big believer in swinging on one plane. I think as humans, we're, we're built to in a complicated fashion. We've got two sides of our body. You know, we've got two sets of joints, and to try to, it's, it's, we're not machines. We're not, we're not Iron Byron, where we have one sort of one lever and a, a golf club, and it goes up and down on the same plane. That's fine. And there are players, you know, obviously you can look at Ben Hogan and say, well, look at Ben Hogan, and and for sure, I mean, and that's, I think that's a great thing about this game, that there are many ways to skin a cat, and so if you look at all the, every golf swing, there's there's nothing, there's no two swings out there, especially amongst the top players, that's for sure, that are are identical, it's impossible. I mean, you could say maybe Adam Scott and Tiger Woods in the early days, there were a couple of similarities, but even there there were some differences, so we're all we're all unique, we're all different and uh, a swing is like the DNA, really. I mean, it's like, you know, you could tell somebody from 200 yards away who, who that is swinging, just, just by their mannerisms and the way you know, the way they move and their tempo and so on.
1: So in effect, your, your personality should be reflected in your golf swing. It certainly doesn't, it doesn't do any harm to have a bit of personality because you need to be, well, you need to have kind of um, control of your own essence sometimes. I mean, you do need to have things technically correct to a point. But if, you, if your character is not represented in how you perform, uh, it can break down or, or, or have I got that right? No, no. You're 100% right there. I mean, it,
15: it's all about, look, I mean, are you trying to create this perfect golf swing? I think the problem is today with all the technology and all the biomechanics stuff around. Uh, don't get me wrong, it's very interesting. But you know, no, there's no ways you can actually produce this swing which is like a carbon copy of somebody else's and it's just no way. I mean you look at look at look at your great Eamon Darcy, look at look at Miller Barber, I mean, you know, I mean Gabe Brewer. I mean, you know, you've got swings which are unique there, which which performed and that's what it's all about. In the end, it's like, well, how does it perform? You know, how, how much belief does a player have in their own technique? How much do they understand their own swing, as I say, no matter what your swing is like you've got to own it and understand how it works and know things go wrong how you get back on track so so we have to be very careful i think at a young age yes you can you can you can develop swings and you can develop techniques and technique has no question has got better over the years i mean we're seeing youngsters you know from the age of six and seven and so on go to academies and developing swings i mean you know, we're involved with a group in Korea called Golf Zone. They've got a, they've got this facility there called Soy Maru, which is like an Olympic training facility for golf. And they've got 100 young people there from the ages of about 10 to 18. And then you, you've got these golf swings, which like, wow. I mean, really pure, pure, pure. You know, so if you, you can develop at a young age. But, I mean, a lot of times, I mean, some of these players, probably the Eamon Darcy of the world, I mean, you know, or a Grand McDowell type player, or hey, you go back to Trevino. I mean, you know, they find ways to sort of get the ball moving on the trajectory they wanted to go. And uh, you know,
3: they obviously unbelievably successful. It was interesting listening to Eamon Darcy though
1: on episode two or part two of this uh, Bruin series because he said, Look, it's all about owning your swing and it's all about ball flight. The ball never lies. And John Jacobs would buy into that and he, he, he was a proponent of that for, forever. But the other crucial thing is you need to be able to chip and putt too. And and Darcy made himself the best chipper on the European tour for a period. And they would all bow, you know, at the altar of Eamon Darcy. And I'm talking about Seve, Langer, Faldo. They would all check out how he did it because he he had... You need to own at least one part. And Roland Rafferty reflected on that as well in, in part two. Because, you know, he had the quirky Irish swing, but he had a lot of control over it and he became European number one. Um, so... It's not about textbook perfection, is it?
15: No, it's not. Uh, it, it really isn't. And uh, you know, how did David Ferragi describe Eamon's swing? as an octopus falling out of a tree. I think he was. <laughs> I remember which <laughs> It's quite funny. But, you know, so I'm sure if Eamon was, uh, if he didn't have the self-belief that he had, or any of these players with different swings, shall we say, I mean, you wouldn't hear of them because, I mean, it's, it's not all about you know uh, what a nice looking swing. I mean, there's a lot of nice looking swings. I mean, if you go back in the day, I'm um, you know dating myself a little bit here, but not much. I mean, you know, one of the greatest, one of the great swings was Tom Pertzer. Okay, now Tom Curtis, unbelievable golf swing. But I mean, tipping and putting, I mean, it wasn't as forte at all. I mean, what you know, people love to get mesmerised standing on the range watching. And then you know, you go back to a player, you know, great ball striker, great swing, and. You know, you think in terms of the uh, you know, only one uh, one major, Tom Weisskopf. I mean, you know, you speak to Gary Player, he'll tell you, listen, ball striking-wise, I mean, there was no comparison between him and his sort of, you know, compatriot Jack Nicklaus, you know. But, I mean, the fact is, look, it's more than just the golf ball, you know. It's, it's the six inches between the ears, which is the big thing.
1: No doubt about it. And just to finish on Jimmy Bruin, because, you know, Anyone who saw him play and anyone who was intimate with him in terms of golf in Cork Golf Club and beyond, they all remarked about how he had just the most beautiful touch and phenomenal chipper and putter and, and a really confident putter. Um, but he did have that kind of special action. And as we mark his centenary, perhaps a, a final word about you know, Ireland's first golf superstar, David Ledbetter.
15: Yeah, as I say, he he sort of had it all, and it was just a shame that he was born maybe a few years too young. And uh, I mean, obviously, turning professional back in those days, there wasn't much in it and from a from a uh, earning earning money stamp, from an earning money standpoint. And so it was a, it was a shame, really, because uh, he really, you know, as I say, if he'd been born a few years later, who knows what would have happened? And uh, it's uh, but certainly, I mean, look, it's it's like you know, you looked at the great Canadian player, Mo Norman, you know, as, as the years go on, you know, the stories and uh, you know, they become part of folklore and so I think that uh, you know, Jimmy Bruin obviously is uh, uh, some. he's going to be talked about forever in the game of golf and just from his uniqueness and obviously his great ability and the fact that very few players hit the ball as far as he did back in the day. I mean, there were a couple but nothing, I mean, today everybody hits it a long way but back then with that equipment I mean just incredible what he was able to achieve it was just a shame really we never saw didn't see him long enough really and uh, obviously injuries blighted him and uh, but it's uh, it's really
1: interesting just watching and uh, looking at all the film of him and so on and uh, seemed a really nice man as well David always a pleasure and uh, let's keep in touch
16: There will be another dream for me, someone will bring it. I will drink the wine when it is warm, and never let you catch me looking at the sun.
1: Richard Harris from Limerick, Munster being such a a rugby stronghold and a great golfing stronghold, but uh, Richard Harris, the late, great Limerick man and his chart success, MacArthur Park, written by the wonderful Jimmy Webb. Well, the voyage continues here on this uh, celebration of Jimmy Bruin, who, well, we marked his centenary, the centenary of his birth. On May the eighth, and we did that with a video. And uh, what followed then was the plan to do a podcast, which is effectively a little radio show, kind of paying tribute to him and his legacy. And it has turned into a voyage of discovery, which is now in part four. So there are going to be five parts to this, and we are going to finish in style. But it has been a phenomenal journey so far, and I am delighted now to welcome another monster golfing star and. She's from Tipperary originally, but has resided in Dublin for a long time, member of Ellen Park and married to Edward Butler, prominent member of Port Marnock, former captain and a rich legacy there with uh, his family. But Ida Butler played Curtis Cup in 1966 for Great Britain and Ireland and was captain of the winning Curtis Cup team in 1996 at Killarney, where Jimmy Bruin used to holiday with Nell and the family. And it's just a glorious place for golf, down by the lake. And it's got a rich history itself. And uh, what a spectacular venue to have such a a momentous win. Ita it must bring back great memories when you think of that victory in 1996. Uh, And great to talk to you as well, by the
17: way. Thank you very much, Shane. It certainly does. It was it was just a, a fantastic. It's like a dream, really. Yeah. Uh, the whole everything about it was wonderful. Even the weather behaved. We had glorious sunshine for the whole week practice and and for the match itself. So it was it was it was wonderful. And the people of Killarney and all the supporters who were there made it a very special occasion. And to win, of course, was the icing on the cake. Yeah. And um, we celebrated in
1: style. Good, I'm glad to hear it. What a win. What mm-hmm. a win. But what a place to do it because it is rather beautiful. It is I suppose you could call it the tourist mecca of Ireland. Um and it's got a rich history with golf and you know we've seen Shell's wonderful world of golf down there with Joe Carr back in the day and uh then mm-hmm. some classic Irish mm-hmm. amateur championships there and European team championships and Just a lot of great golf has been played in Killarney and uh, we've had the Irish Open in more recent times, but your win in 96 was kind of special because it's the cream of the crop from, you know, the amateurs of Great Britain and Ireland taking on the very best that America has. And they've been doing that now for, I don't know, it's over 40 stagings now at this point. I would think they're probably, it was supposed to be the 43rd, if I'm not mistaken, uh, this summer, which now won't happen.
17: Unfortunately not. But no, as you say, Killarney is is just a magnificent place. But what's extraordinary is, uh, what struck me was the fact that the people of Killarney continue to support everybody who goes there, in spite of the fact that a lot of events have taken place there Mm. over the years. They still approach each of each new event as if it's the first. They're just as enthusiastic in their support, which is extraordinary. It really is a wonderful place, uh, venue for any event and uh, the people who played there, the people who visited and were supporting that week still remind me of what a great event the whole thing was and how magnificent Killarney was. It showed it certainly that week and I've been there a few times since and it's just as good all the time, each time.
1: Yeah and the Curtis Cup is obviously you know a very historic event in terms of ladies golf and you Mm -hmm. did play yourself in the States in 1966 which was well, obviously a huge highlight, but uh, it was kind of only the start, really, of your your involvement in 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 golf because it has become this lifelong thing, hasn't it?
17: Well, it has. It's it, that's the thing about golf. Golf is something. It can sometimes have a bad press, but in fact, golf is a marvelous game because uh, for young and you could. Uh, people it's, it's wonderful it teaches them discipline and integrity i think if it's taught properly but also um to think i can still play golf and mm. with my friends and enjoy it just as much it's it's It's, it's a wonderful it's a great sport recommended for anybody yeah but um, i'm very fortunate to have been able to play then and continue to play now
1: yeah and do you still go to all the curtis cup matches or as many as possible don't you
17: I go to as many as possible, and as I think I mentioned to you before, Shane, once you go to one, you're hooked. Yeah. There's a lovely, wonderful atmosphere, particularly at, at these amateur events, because you, you can actually walk uh, alongside the players. Along, mm-hmm. You can you don't have to cope with massive crowds. There are they're, they're very well supported, but you don't have the, the huge support that you have from professional events. Yeah. And there really, there's camaraderie on these special weeks is amazing
1: wonderful and when you played in 1966 in the uh, states um mm-hmm. who, who were the big stars of the american side if you don't mind me asking her
17: well at that time barbara mcintyre was certainly one of the big yeah. stars there was a girl called um oh Christy. yeah now you've got me on the horse
1: <laughs> <laughs> sorry mm-hmm. about that Bar- barbara mcintyre was a former u.s women's amateur champion and yeah, one of their leading lights yeah
17: that's right. In fact, it was interesting that year because, um, I think I mentioned this to you, I don't know if I did, uh, Joanne Carner yeah. was to have played on the team, but because she had hinted that she was going to become, there was a possibility she might turn professional professional, yeah. she, she had to be dropped from the team because at that time you weren't allowed to entertain the idea of being an amateur and a professional. They're very strict
1: (laughs) in the United States. Certainly the USGA rules around all of that kind of stuff. And even colleges, you know, you can't talk to a prospective scholarship student uh, until a certain time. And then, you know, as you've experienced or as Joanne Carner, unfortunately, experienced. I mean, she's one of the she's a Hall of Famer, but and she's Mm. she's gone beyond that. I mean, obviously, that was a bit of a blip, but you can't even mention that you have kind of any idea mm. or a notion to turn professional?
17: That's, well, well, they seem to have gone... As you know now, they, they, they recruit uh, at junior level for universities in America. They come and watch what's happening in, say, the, the British Girls or events like that. And they recruit um, youngsters who they would like to invite to their universities. And that's happening all the time. In fact, this year it's going to be difficult. I feel really sorry for juniors this year especially on account of COVID.
3: Because
17: yeah. I know a number of them who signed up to um, uh, university uh, scholarships in America, but I'm, not, I'm sure, I hope they're able the to avail of them. But I'm sure their parents will be a little bit worried, uh, you know, from a health point of view, whether it's advisable or not. But um, it's a, it's, a, it's an issue. It's a problem for, for these young people at a critical stage in their development when um, it's so important for them. Mm. To uh, get out there and be able to take
1: part and and improve their game I mean yeah everything's kind of really drastically changed at the moment so nobody Mm. really knows how it's going to actually pan out but um, Mm. you know you could get very worried or you could get very paranoid about it but you've kind of got to stay hopeful as well that things will get better and that a vaccine will be found and then that some semblance of normality or what was or what will be the new normality can kind of happen comfortably do you know
17: what I mean? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I'm sure as well. I'm sure that'll be the case, Shane. But it'll yeah. take a while. I'm sure it'll take. No, I mean I haven't a clue really. But <laughs> I, I'm sure all these wonderful scientists will sort everything out yeah. in time. Given
1: you know, time. Um, just to get back on track, we're kind of talking about Jimmy Brune and the mm. Centenary and mm. Nell Bruny's amazing wife. And uh, just before mm. we do that, I have managed to drag something up on the old computer here, Eita. I'm not going to put you on mm-hmm. the spot, but. Like you know, mm. you 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 played with some amazing names. You mentioned Barbara McIntyre on the States side, the mm-hmm. US side, but but on your own team, like the likes of um, Bell Robertson, who's still going strong, Angela Andrew Banalik, Green. my word. Yeah. You know, I talked to Absolutely. Sir Michael Banalik on uh, Friday on episode three, and she was in the background, in the kitchen, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I was telling Sir Michael that um, Nell Bruin is still alive, and he was stunned. And I said, yep, really? she is 101 and will be 102 yeah. in late yeah. July. And Angela Benalic was blown away as well. So they hadn't, they weren't aware that she was still going strong, you know, which is fantastic. Um, yeah,
17: that's, that's terrific. That's a yeah. nice story. Yeah. yeah.
1: And uh, yeah. Sir Michael was telling me that Angela is still playing uh, single figure golf. She's 83.
17: Really, yeah. well, she was a fantastic person um, on that team. For me, for anyway, for anybody, but yeah. she was so encouraging. Angela was just uh, a rock, really, for that team. She was, she was, couldn't have been nicer. And um, she shared her experiences. And, and in fact, I had one of the practice rounds with her, and she was just marvelous, wonderful, so encouraging, great person.
1: Yeah, team one golf is team. brilliant, though, isn't it? Isn't you know, isn't it? Is a team when you actually because it's such a solitary sport, but when you play team golf um it just takes on a whole new level uh, of appreciation and memories and everything that it kind of gives you.
17: Oh absolutely. Absolutely. You're, you couldn't you could you're absolutely right. I agree. Terrific.
1: Now Nell as I mentioned is still going strong and she's an amazing mm-hmm. lady. You you've come across her uh like you're a former president of the ILGU, uh former international, so you've kind of done the whole thing. You've 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 been involved at every level. Um but Nell Nell was this administrator this uh volunteer who scaled the heights and you kind of you were privy to her rise and to be able to observe her contribution um what can kind I of, what kind of lady is she
17: Well I first met Nell uh, in Little Island um in, at the Irish Coast Championship it was in the 1960s yeah. and Nell from that time onwards Nell, e, even though Nell was an age gap Nell was one of those people who you found you could, you could speak to her about anything mm-hmm. she was just the most approachable person knowledgeable and uh, a, a wonderful wonderful person mm-hmm. such a gracious lady mm-hmm. um I then from that that time onwards, I Nell, our paths would have crossed at, at various events. Obviously, I didn't play as much golf after my marriage for a while. Yeah. But um, from then on, Nell and I would meet at events, and we had the best of fun. She was, as I said, so easy to talk to. She went. I think she was. At that, I'm not sure if that in the 1960s she was on the. um Executive, but became a member of the Munster Executive yeah. and then went on to be president of the Irish Ladies Golf Union. And Nell, and as a matter of interest, she then, when I was captain of the Great Britain and Ireland Agliano team, when yeah. it was played in Yerne, Nell was president of the um, Ladies Golf Union.
1: Uh, yeah, the LGU. Which, which is a big honor, isn't it, for an Irish woman to actually scale oh. that particular peak
17: fantastic but Mel was well up to the job she was she was uh, one of those people who uh, she listened to what everybody had to say, mm. she spoke very quietly gently uh, she um, didn't suffer food easily <laughs> <laughs> uh, she was a very wise woman and she would see through things very quickly mm. um, I, I just found her an amazing woman. In fact, at that event in in the night before the event in in uh, Nairn, Nell um, sent me a lovely note, wishing me well, wishing the team well, and uh, it was just fantastic to get yeah. something like that from her. Um, but also during during the matches, she, all you needed was a look from Nell, and you you knew she was right behind you. She was yeah. encouraging. She everything about her personality. Uh, the loyalty was part of her yeah. makeup as well she yeah. just was such a loyal uh, person i don't think i ever heard her say a bad word about anybody yeah. but um that didn't mean she didn't see <laughs> these things she was just she was just such a gracious lady and um so approachable as i said not at all intimidating mm. um i i um she she actually she did various volunteer jobs for the ILGU and did them with great dignity mm. and um was tireless in her work. Mm. But as I said, one of the things actually I think I admired about Nell was that when she was finished with her administration, yeah, she was happy to walk away from it. Yeah. And let others do the do their do the business. Mm. She was never judgmental in that way. And one of the last times I met Nell was when the ILGU moved to their new offices in Furs Road. I'm, I'm sure you know it. Yes, I do. Samson. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. yeah. Schneid Herity and mm-hmm. Carla. Yeah, They're the
17: yeah. beautiful offices up there. Yeah. And um, Nell was there. The half-presidents were invited to lunch and to view the premises. But I was fortunate to be sitting beside Nell and we had a great chat really enjoyed it. She had come up specially from Cork. (laughs) But um, at the end of it, she said, I've really enjoyed seeing the offices and they're beautiful. And it's lovely to see them. But she said, I'm really looking forward to getting back to Cork. And she said, I don't think I'll be coming up to Dublin again. And I just thought it was typical Nell. She said it. Yeah. Said the, said the facts, made you know, voice the facts, yeah. and that was which was couldn't wait to get back to court. So she was a very gracious lady. Mm. Um, everything about her was dignified mm. and she and elegant. She, as you know, you're, you probably know yourself, she was the most elegant person in demeanor and in,
3: yeah, her
1: yeah. I didn't meet her enough, I must say. I've spoken to her several times on the phone, and I met her at the mm-hmm. Irish Close, ladies' Close down in Fota in 09. Uh, Lisa mm-hmm. McGuire took the title from her twin sister, who had won the previous year. Leona, right,
3: yeah, and there yeah. was Nell
1: walking the fairways with some other stars of yesteryear, and it was amazing yeah. to watch them all together. And yeah. Uh, yeah, she had a she had an appeal. It was kind of there was a kind of a quiet magnetism about her because you knew who she was, and yeah. you'd have to go to her and kind of say hello and whatever. She would never. She was never pushy, if you know what I mean. She would no. never be a busybody or um, oh, no. making her presence felt, but she just had presence, if you know what I mean.
17: Quite. That's a good way to put it, actually. That's very, very appropriate way to to yeah. describe the man. She really was just such a gentle, gracious person. Mm. But she was very... She was confident yeah, in the nicest possible way. Yeah. In the nicest possible way. And, um, as I said, so quietly spoken, but... Um, she she could make her presence felt very much so when she when it needed to be.
1: Yeah, great, great. Um, well, I think, uh, you know, you've kind of captured uh, a lot of what she is and how she represents herself and what she's done is incredible and never easy mm-hmm. losing a husband that, that young. And, mm-hmm. you know, to have such a full life with him and to rear six kids and then uh, he's gone, you know taken way too yeah. early and then to kind of transmit all of that sort of sadness and uh, all the other feelings that you probably would have and kind of um, just put her, her energies into the mm-hmm. the the rearing of her kids but also giving back to golf which she did hugely like mm-hmm. um, she deserves a lot of credit a lot of credit oh yeah
17: she was a very able woman, very yeah. able, yeah. and uh, was as I. Uh, but it, it, it all rested very easily on her shoulders, yeah. and um, she she just was somebody I would admire hugely. Yeah. And I, I'd be delighted if she considered me one of her friends. Yeah. Fantastic woman. Yeah. Wonderful.
1: Amazing. Well, listen. Thanks very much, Eija. You know. Or, yeah. Oh, sorry. Did you want to say something else? Sorry.
17: Unfortunately. Yeah. I was going to say,
1: sorry, Shane, unfortunately I didn't know her husband, Jimmy. Yeah. That's all I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah. And look, I mean, a lot of us never met Jimmy Bruin. I've been fascinated about, by him since Mm -hmm. I was a kid, for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. He was a a monster legend. Um, Yeah. But, you know, you kind of, you kind of pick up these bits and pieces. This has been very, very good in this respect, kind of just trying to colour him in because he was our first superstar of golf. But, Mm -hmm. um you know, I think it's fair to say that the pair of them between them, you know, they, they lived their life. Like you should play around a golf. You got to play it as it lies and, um, you know, do the right thing. And I think they, they did that. The pair of them, they did that. Well, well
17: if nearly anything to go by. I, I, that's the only, she's, the, the, he must've been magnificent as a pair. They must've been yeah. wonderful. Yeah. But, uh, no, she, she's a, a fantastic woman. And, um, I'm delighted. I, I know, Nell. I'm yeah. delighted. I know, yeah. And um, that I've had the pleasure of her company Great. over so many years. Wonderful Great. person. Right. Well, and um, I wish her well.
1: Yeah, she's an amazing lady. 102 on the 29th of July. It's extraordinary.
17: So, 29th. 29th. Of July, yeah, I yeah. To
1: yeah, get, that. yeah, to write that one down. We need to send her some really? some flowers and some mm-hmm. cards. And January, yeah, absolutely. There you go, Eita. 102.
17: 102. 102. Yes. Mm.
1: Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, listen, thanks very much, Eita. Um, Thank you, Shane. It's always a pleasure.
17: I do you make sense of that jumble. <laughs>
1: it's mm. all good. <laughs> it's all good. And uh, it's good to be talking to a, a fellow fellow Premier County resident. Exactly.
17: I'll
1: <laughs> we'll give my love to
17: Helen above
1: all. Okay. All right. Listen, thank you very much. And um right, I'm going Shane. to play a little bit of Pavarotti for you. Yeah, um, do that. All right. I've got them lined up here. I'll uh I'm not oh, going to pick man. the ob- I'm not going to pick the obvious, but I'll dedicate this to no. you and uh your husband Edward, two great servants good of man. Irish golf and uh this one is good for man. you. Thanks. Thanks, Ida.
17: Thank you, Shane. Bye-bye. Good to talk to you. Bye-bye.
0: This centenary celebration of Jimmy Bruin was brought to you in association with AIG, serving the car and home insurance needs of Ireland's golfers. Get a quote at aig.ie forward slash golf. You've been listening to Shane O on the radio, which is a niche media production. Any and all unauthorised use or broadcast of the material contained herein will be in breach of copyright.